Good morning and welcome. It is the Lord's Day. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to say welcome. Glad you could be with us. And it's nice to see some people that are visiting home again. Nice to see your faces. The text that we're in today is a simple message with an elusive experience. You know, it's interesting trying to find a metaphor for the greatest metaphor in the Bible, except it's not a metaphor. It's a reality. We are the body of Christ. All I can do this morning is, it's a little bit like a gardener. Make you, I can't make the, the flowers smell, but I can say, stop and sit here for a while and take it in. What the scripture says about who we are an apostolic declaration of who we are as the people of God and, and begin to think and, and absorb some of the realities that exist for us as a people in the Christian life. I doubt that there's anything in the text this morning that was read that any of us do not believe, but I think that there's a lot in the text this morning that we don't believe strong enough. What do you believe? And we try to govern our lives with, with what we believe, right? And yet there seems to be a gap between this interdependence and mutual dependence and indispensability of, of, of members in Christ and our actual experience. And if there's a gap, it means that there may not be anything here that we, we don't believe, but there's other things that we believe stronger and that's what we need to examine. What is it, what is it that we believe stronger, stronger, more strongly than what the scriptures declare to us about being a body? I remember as a young child being in Disneyland and standing in a room with a whole crowd of people watching on a massive screen. It was my, my first exposure to what we now know as simulation. <laughs> You know, some of you remember, I don't know, the kids even get to experience that. Remember their first time with simulation now? But wow, it was quite an experience then. Simulation. We were driving through San Francisco on a fire truck. Anybody see that simulation years and years ago? And you're standing there, and the whole crowd's swaying and moving around like you were going through up and down the hills in San Francisco on a fire truck. But nobody left the building actually believing that they were in a fire truck. And sometimes that's how we feel about texts like this. We talk a lot about interdependence. We talk about belonging to one another. We talk about the body of Christ, but we leave without anybody ever really believing that that's our experience. So the main point here is really not complicated, but it's perceived as a threat. That's why it's such a challenge. The main point is perceived as a threat to our ingrained cultural values of autonomy, of independence, of consumerism, where interdependence is viewed as a weakness. And it's another example in the Corinthian church where, where the wisdom of God is put in the hands of worldly people. And what would we do with the celebrity status of, of gifts today, you know? I, I've tested my celebrity status. I have three Twitter followers. Everybody else just blocks me. They don't care. Everything goes wonky. 
Religion goes wonky when we have the right vocabulary, but we don't have the spirit. So the main point is four words. The main point of the text is simply this. We need each other. Maybe we should have a tattoo artist here someday, you know? Four words. Oh, yeah, I forgot. We need each other. No, sorry, we won't get it. That's the thirsty crowd that maybe we'll get a tattoo artist. No, we won't do that either. <clears throat> My children would not be pleased. If we need each other. Like I say, it's not complicated, but we just need to sit and think about it. And the evidence of our saturation, Paul uses a couple of words here, not only baptism, but also drinking. It, it's a word that means to irrigate something. The evidence of saturation in the spirit is witnessed by our interdependence, not our autonomy. Holiness isn't a private affair. And so I have a simple outline from the text that, that Paul gives, first of all, a declaration of a universal reality. And that universal reality is evidenced by our interdependence. And that interdependence is something which is arranged by God. You'll notice that God is the subject of almost every verb in the text. God appoints. God does everything. So first of all, a declaration of, of universal reality. Paul's use of the body language is not a metaphor. He doesn't use the word like anywhere in the text. It doesn't say that the church is like a body. It's a declaration of a reality. Notice verse 27. You are the body of Christ. It isn't just illustrative purposes to help us imagine what the church is like. In fact, the word church isn't even used in the text. It's a declaration of something that is true. He's not borrowing metaphors from, from nature like Socrates did to describe the Roman Republic. He's using what God has already created in the human body to say, and this is what you are. Look at verse 12 for a moment and go to the end of the verse if you have your Bibles open go to the end of the verse and you see the word Christ at the end of the verse put your finger over the word Christ don't worry it's okay just for a moment and I'm going to read the verse but if your finger is over the word Christ the very last word of the verse just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body, so it is with, how would you finish that sentence? I would finish it with, so it is with the church. Isn't it a passage about the church? It's not. So it is with Christ. Those of you that like big words, this isn't a text on ecclesiology. It's a text on Christology. For those of you that don't like big words, Paul isn't talking about the church. He's talking about Christ. What Christ is like. Jesus had a physical body prepared by the Holy Spirit for his earthly ministry. Prepared in the womb of Mary. And now Jesus has a body prepared by the Spirit for his earthly purposes. 
Christ has many parts. It's a profound declaration, an apostolic declaration. There's no other way that we could possibly imagine if it weren't for Paul's commission directly from Christ. And he says that we are all baptized into one body. How could it be more than one body? That body is Christ. The emphasis on unity. Now, isn't it a tremendous irony that the baptism of the Spirit is often used for a special group, a special club, a, a, an elitism, a stratification in the people of God? When Paul uses the phrase actually to describe a universal experience that is true of all of us. That little preposition. Have I ever told you that I like prepositions? One of the most necessary attended to prepositions in all of the Bible. You are baptized into. Next time somebody says, are you baptized in the Spirit? Say, yes, into. Into. The body of Christ. Now, it's vocabulary that we've become far too familiar with. We're the body of Christ. You know, sometimes words just glibly fall off of our lips, right? We're the body of Christ. Imagine if somebody didn't know that, but they knew who Christ was. Imagine this being declared for the first time. Imagine somebody knowing who Christ was and becoming familiar with the truth about Christ, knowing that he was, was the, the, the sovereign conqueror of death, one who had come to earth and defeated the power of death and had destroyed death, ascended into heaven in all glorious dominion and power, and is coming again to restore all of God's purposes and his creation. And we say, yes, and we're the body of Christ. And they would say, you're the what of who? Imagine when the angels heard it for the first time knowing the glorious dominion of their Lord who they were devoted to in heaven. And say, they're, they're what? No wonder they serve us with such affection. You know, the Christian life sometimes is simply learning to practice what is already true of us by grace. That's very true of the body. It's true of us by grace. But Paul is teaching them to learn to practice and live according to what is already true of them by grace. It is a declaration of a reality. It is evidenced by interdependence. It is evidenced by people experiencing interdependence. Ever ask yourself the question, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I hope you do. It's a very significant question. What does my life look like? What would it look like for my life to be saturated with the Spirit? The answer to that question, what does it look like to be saturated with, which is such a great word. Anybody use soaker hoses? Not to hurt people with, but to, to soak trees, I mean. Saturated with the Spirit. The evidence of it is unity and mutual dependence. Now, unity isn't just the absence of strife. You can't say, I'm, isn't it great to be united to all of these people? By the way, who, who are they anyway? But I'm not fighting with them. Peaceful independence is not the same as unity. 
And that's where Paul's wonderful language of the body helps us to see that point. Paul uses the, 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 the language of the body to show us that if the, we are a body, then to be individual parts is an absurdity. It just simply doesn't work, and it can't be. It's as possible for us to be independent from the body as it is for the eye or the ear or the foot to be independent of the body. This very simple language, but it's very sanctifying truth. But the interdependence isn't the end goal, it's the evidence. You know, there's such an important distinction between the substance and the evidence. And the interdependence is not the substance, it's the evidence. The substance is, are we filled with the Spirit? That's the substance. I mean, we talk about interdependence, and the first thing that comes to our, our minds is, well, how can we organize that? <laughs> you know, what, what, kind of a, what kind of an organization can we develop? What kind of management skills can we impose in order for people to experience interdependence with one another? That's not the end game. You know, people can have all kinds of wonderful family experiences that are void of the Spirit. It's the fruit and the substance is, is being saturated with the Spirit. It's the Spirit that connects us to Christ. Now, statements that are common amongst God's people, I've used them myself, experienced it myself, are things like, well, I'm not needed here. Or, I just don't need God's people. Both of those statements lie outside of the biblical description of what it looks like to be baptized in the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. To be living in the Spirit. And Paul gives a little test. It, it's not just a, a theoretical unity that he's talking about. He, he, he gives a very simple and efficient test of interdependence. And it's simply this, the sharing of joy and pain. When one part suffers, you all suffer. When one part rejoices, you all rejoice. It's a simple test. But how effective is that? For us to examine our engagement, our bearing the fruit of the saturation of the Spirit by experiencing interdependence, looking around us, do you share people's joy and pain? Are you engaging in any capacity that even allows you to know anyone? They're tremendous opportunities, and I, I don't want to be so negative all the time. I thank the Lord for the wonderful ways in which people do engage, and they genuinely care for each other. And that's what it is to be the body. And is your, is your character such, this is the sanctifying part, is your character such that you can truly give thanks to God 
for someone else's success or do you do you secretly say well at least at least it's better than their experience or at least you know it's happened to them you know we're not in competition with each other it's a tremendous fruit of the spirit to rejoice with somebody who prospers with somebody who excels with somebody who is, is, is lifted to a place of effectiveness or someone whose life is, is full of thanksgiving and glory to God. Because it means that the body is prospering. And their success shouldn't be a threat to us. And it is, I'm going to just stop and say, stop and dwell on this. It is probably one of the most effective instruments of sanctification in our lives. And God calling us to deal with our pride, to deal with our isolation, our criticism, our lips and our tongues that are quick to judge, our superiority attitudes, our indifference. And to put on kindness and gentleness and graciousness and love. Thirdly, it's an evidence of the Spirit. And the functions of the body are all a sovereign work of God. Verse 18 says, God arranges. Verse 24 says, God so composes. Verse 28 says that God appoints, and the verse, the word in 24 has uh, a connotation that would be similar to somebody who takes primary colors. If you're an artist, you would even know what the primary colors are. Uh, you can tell me later, okay? And that's where you get other colors from. And that's how God sovereignly works to arrange as he perceives fit, giving people gifts and calls them to be a part of the body. What was going on in Corinth is that certain people were seeking greatness. Imagine that. Seeking spiritual superiority through their gifts as a form of elitism and a wrong stratification and a hierarchy of God's people. You see, gifts aren't a path either to admiration or to acceptance. And there are things in us that drive us wrongly for gifts. Sometimes it's adulation, and sometimes it's an insecurity that just wants to belong. And they can drive us wrongly. And it's wrong for us to exalt one gift or another, but that doesn't prohibit God from giving certain gifts a prominence. And that's exactly what God does. A prominence not because the person is seeking prominence, but rather because God has appointed it. You see the difference there? Not someone who says, well, I, I want my, my gift to be a seeking prominence for their gift but a gift that God has appointed 
to have prominence through which the person does not seek prominence, but people understand the significance of being a beneficiary of the gift. It's like a great chef who doesn't advertise. Not promoting his place, not saying I'm the best chef that ever came to town, but his place is stuffed full of people because he's a good chef. So that's why Paul can say, seek the greater gifts or earnestly desire the higher gifts. It's not a contradiction to what, what he has just said about the dignity and equality of all the people in the body. There are certain gifts which we all depend upon in order for any of our other gifts to be rightly connected to Christ and to one another. And those greater gifts, Paul numbers, so one, two, and three is pretty plain. Number one, number two, number three. And the first one is apostleship. Now, let me just give a ever so brief personal interjection. I've been all over the road with this. I've been all over, literally all over the church world with this. I've been everywhere, man. <laughs> Can't play guitar, but I've been everywhere. I want a correspondence between what the Bible says and what we do together. We call ourselves the people of God. I want correspondence. I, I'm not comfortable living with a group of people who just don't care or ignoring certain parts of the Bible and saying, well, you know, that's not for today or, or this is how, you know, we're, we're quite comfortable in, in, in just parts of the experience. I want, I want all of it. And I want all of it all the time. So I've, I've been a Pentecostal. I've been a Lutheran. I've been a Presbyterian. I've been a Baptist. In fact, I'm still a Baptist. Who knows what will be next? Uh, Anglicans like to say everybody's on their way to becoming an Anglican. So <laughs> that could be true of me. I, I don't know. <clears throat> but particularly on the gift of apostleship. So this is a little bit through my own personal lens. Take that for what it's worth. Figure it out yourself. What are you going to do with it? You're just going to throw it away? Say, well, you know, whatever. Don't need that. Where are you going to go looking for it? The greater gifts are these, apostleship, prophets, and teachers. Not all of us should seek to possess those gifts, but we should all seek zealously to be the beneficiaries of them particularly under the gifts of apostleship, prophets, and teachers. Why? Because more than any other gift, any other gift of help or service or miracles, these three connect us to the mysteries of Christ. Apostleship for the Corinthians was the Apostle Paul. And Paul's gift to them was to declare to them mysteries about Christ, which it would be impossible for them to know otherwise. Mysteries like this. You are the body of Christ. The gift of apostleship is to take and declare from those who were with our Lord, commissioned by our Lord, to say what we could not know to be true about Christ if it were not for apostleship. There's a lot going on in the text here between Paul the Apostle and the Corinthian church and description of, of uh, parts that are despised and, 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 and covered and given modesty, even though God has given those parts great honor. 
There's a lot going on underneath the surface here that I uh, surface that I won't that I won't get into. But that's what apostleship was and is today also through the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. I hope you devour the New Testament. I hope you read it over and over and over again because there are mysteries of Christ declared to you only in the New Testament through the apostles of our Lord. And we should seek the gift of apostleship that God has given to us through his men. I read through the New Testament several times a year. It takes me two years to get through the Old Testament. But the New Testament's a relatively short book. But this is what apostles do. They declare things, mysteries, revelations, things that we could not otherwise know. Prophets are also vital. Prophets are vital. They, they both then and in the Corinthian church and also now today not to give us new information, but to remind us of what we know to be true about Christ. Because we forget. We forget all the time. You look through the Old Testament, it's what the prophets did over and over and over again. They says, has the Lord not said? <laughs> you know what prophetic ministry is? Prophetic ministry says, do you folks have ears? <laughs> have you heard this before? This is prophetic ministry right now. Do you know that you are the body of Christ? That's not a new revelation. It's an old revelation, but it's a reminding of a revelation that we need to hear over and over and over again because we forget it. That's prophetic ministry. Seek it. Be zealous for it. We need it. And the third one is teaching. Teachers are also vital to take the apostolic revelation and what the prophets remind us of and to instruct us, to explain it, to develop it, to catechize it, to, to organize it. This is what it looks like. For example, eschatology, another big word, the last days. The world didn't end yesterday. Coincidentally, the insurance on my motorcycle ex uh, expired yesterday, and I thought, well, if the, um, if the world ends, wouldn't that be great if it had? Hallelujah. Wouldn't that be glorious if the stars aligning and we were all in glory? I would say, thank the Lord. Amen and hallelujah. But what I know to be true about the coming of our Lord, I look zealously for apostolic words of information. And, you know, people say apostles. It just means sent ones. There's apostles today. And I, I don't have a problem with people using the word apostle today. But apostles in Every age since the apostles have nothing new to declare to people except what the Lord's apostles said. And it's wonderful if people can go into places as modern-day apostles to declare things that have never been heard before. They have no idea who Jesus is. But it's rooted entirely in the gift of apostleship in the New Testament. And I want to know what they say about the Lord's coming. And I want to be reminded again and again and again that the Lord is coming. Do you know this stuff? The Lord is coming. And I want it developed in my life. I want to be people answering the question for me. What does it look like to be taught? Say, what does it look like to live a life that's expecting Jesus to come? And that's true of every, everything we know about, about our Lord, not just the end times, about the atonement, and of course about the church itself. So Paul doesn't try to 
take away their zeal for gifts. Hey, Dad, don't, you're far too zealous. Don't, don't be like that. Just, just numb yourselves. Seek the greater gifts. But he directs it in the path that it should go. And then, of course, in the next paragraph, Paul's got that next week. We lift off into the subject of love. <laughs> so in conclusion, the greatest question here, I hope you get it, it's not an institutional value of pragmatism. The question isn't, are you volunteering? The question is, am I saturated? Am I being fed by the life of God? It was read from Ezekiel later, the wonderful promise of God. Uh, I will put life into you. Jesus says, I will make liver, living water flow within you. It connects me to Jesus and how I think and how I live. There are all kinds of ways that we convince ourselves that we're filled with the Spirit. But it's often in a walled room where holiness is defined by a private, individualized thing. But to be filled with the Spirit clearly is to have our walls knocked down and experience the kind of holiness, the kind of spiritual maturity, the kind of sanctification that comes from relating one to another. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take time in the presence of your word and of your thoughts to ingest them and bear fruit in our lives, I pray. Help us. We are a needy people. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.